Welcome to the Business Chef Podcast, where we learn from the best about the business side of the food service industry. Do you make food? Then let us help you make money doing Want to connect with us? Check us out at Make Food Make Money on Instagram or Facebook. Or email us, info at businesschef.org. Well, hello, everyone out there, and welcome to another edition of the Business Chef Podcast. I, of course, am your host, Chef Sean Boucher. Today, we get to talk to Mr. Lee Jones of the Chef's Garden, better known as Farmer Lee Jones. For those of you who don't know what the Chef's Garden is, the Chef's Garden truly sets the standard when it comes to farming and sustainable farming and flavor. The Chef's Garden has been growing produce for some of the most high-end chefs, restaurants, resorts throughout the country. And now, we get a chance to sit down and talk to Mr. Farmer Lee Jones, something I've really been looking forward to. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, Anytime we get to talk about vegetables is an exciting thing for us. We're in an amazing microclimate. We're located 2.9 miles inland from Lake Erie in Ohio. Uh, Maybe some of the listeners have heard of Cedar Point, which is an amusement park that's got the highest, tallest, fastest roller coasters in the world. It's always on Discovery Channel. If they haven't heard of here on Ohio, they may have heard of uh, Cedar Point. But it's uh, all old lake bottom about 11,000 years ago. It's, in fact, some of the richest sandy loam in the world. And at one point, you know, European settlers recognized this as an amazing growing area. This was huge in grape production even before Napa Valley. And at one point, there were 330 vegetable growers in this county. As near as we can figure, it's the largest concentration of small-scale vegetable farms of any state or any county in the country. Now, you can go to California, and you can find counties that are 100% agriculture, from the north to the south to the east to the west, but they're very large farms. These were, I don't think they would have called themselves artisanal farmers, but uh, today we might call them an artisanal farmer. But back then they were called truck farmers. And, you know, there used to be hundreds of family-owned grocery stores. And so those farmers would grow their products, take them into the farmer's markets, which are entirely different than what we think of today. Farmers markets were, they started about midnight and were over by about four o'clock in the morning. And the customers of those farmers markets were the buyers for each of those family owned grocery stores. And as roads and refrigeration improved, chain grocery stores came in and ultimately those small family owned grocery stores could not compete, but as well the small family farms. And my dad uh, worked collectively uh, with about 65 other growers to uh, offset the competition of larger farms. And they would pack all under one label. They hydrocooled and palletized and shipped every place east of the Mississippi River. And for several years, were able to compete. But ultimately, um, they could not compete with the large-scale farming that was happening. We had a very devastating hailstorm in the early 80s. And I don't know whether your listeners remember, we've kind of gotten lulled to sleep. We have had very reasonable interest rates for the last eight or ten years. I think they're, what, like 3.75 or something right now. But 
in the late 70s, early 80s, they actually hit 21%. And my parents got wrapped up in high interest rates and a devastating hailstorm that wiped out all the crops. And, uh, well, I, at 19 years old, stood with my mother and father and brother and sister, all of our neighbors, all of our competitors, and have watched the banks auction off every single thing we owned, right down to my mother's car and our house. And we started back over with six acres, and a lot of stories I could tell you. We were in survival mode. Um, but um, there we met a European-influenced chef. Her name was Iris Balin. She actually went on to become the food editor at the Cleveland Plain Dealer years later, but she had seen something different. You know, in the United States during that period of 60s and 70s and 80s, the production in the United States in agriculture was all about tons per acre and uh, producing high volumes at low cost. And, you know, here was the chef that we knew, and we knew nothing about the culinary world. And here was the chef that was saying, grow for the quality, grow for the integrity, grow for the flavor, grow without chemical. And she believed that there would be enough chefs that would support it. And we were so desperate for a way to be able to survive in agriculture. Here was this this woman um, in a white chef's jacket that, you know, gave us hope and gave us a little light of glimmer that maybe there was a way for our family farm to be able to somehow scratch out a survival um, in today's world of high volume, low margin. And she gave us a path, and we latched on and grabbed around both of her ankles and wouldn't let her go, and she taught us and led us, led us to the point where we are today. I just have to say that that is an incredible story for anybody, but especially knowing where you are today and what humble beginnings you, you truly had in this endeavor I think makes it all the more interesting and all the more rewarding for those who, who work with you and, and can kind of see where you've come from for to you know where you are today. So how talk to me a little bit about your business model. How does it work? Are you selling through distributors? Do you sell direct? How does it work? Well, we you know, we live by a lot of old farm adages. And uh of course like early bird gets the worm. We were always first to market and last to leave, but the shortest distance between two places is direct. And we don't go through any distributors. We had a a former lifetime of selling to what they called commission houses, where you would take it in and they would sell on commission, and sometimes you would get a zero return for that. We just took a beating. And so our goal was to be able to have the highest quality, highest integrity of product, and by going direct instead of through a distributor. There's nobody that loves and cares for your product like you. And, you know, there's some great distributors out there, but we wanted to be able to control our own destiny and control the, the destiny of our product. And, you know, in a lot of ways, what we've tried to do is go back. We have a saying on the farm that the only thing we're trying to do is get as good as the farmers were 100 years ago. And after we lost the farm and when we started over, we started looking at old agricultural books, 100 years plus. And you look at what they were doing. They were doing a beautiful job of farming quality products without the chemical, rotating the land. Today, farms rotate, but they rotate particularly in the commodity arena between corn, wheat, and beans. The land is never really sitting fallow. Where you can go back actually to biblical times and 
you know, there's a lot of references to agriculture. But in these old agricultural books and, and including the Bible, there are many references that really make good sense today. Two-thirds of our acreage is actually sitting fallow in what we call cover crops. It's pretty amazing. It's our personal belief that God designed a system far superior to anything that we can fake out chemically or synthetically. For us, it's about trying to work in harmony with nature rather than trying to outsmart it. Just like many of the listeners, we've all at some point had to go for blood work. You find that you're high in iron, low in iron, high in calcium, low in calcium. We do the same thing with the soil. And that's pretty amazing because then, based on the deficiencies that we find in the soil, we can plant crop-specific. So it could be buckwheat, it could be clover, it could be alfalfa, it could be vetch, it could be sedan grass. And what's pretty amazing is is that different types of plants will accept different types of energy from the sun. So based on the deficiencies in the soil, we'll plant crop-specific. And those plants are harvesting the sun's energy, pulling it down through the leaves of the plant, into the stems, through the roots, into the soil. And then the next year when we plant the turnip, the beet, the carrot, the radish, the spinach, the tomato, the beans, whatever it is that we're growing to take to market, it picks all of those nutrients back up. And then when we eat them, it builds our immune system. We've abandoned that principle by mimicking that that model with chemical and synthetic inputs. Now I say we, I mean society, not us. And it does fake the plant out, and you're able to produce products very cheap. And as it relates to our income, the United States produces food cheaper than any other country in the world. We also have the highest health care. 3,000% increase in kidney, liver, heart, cancer disease, attention deficit disorder, autism, childhood obesity, allergies. I'd be willing to bet. Well, I wouldn't bet the farm, but I'd bet, bet you dinner that there isn't anybody in their family or immediate circle of friends that doesn't suffer from one or more of those diseases. Ultimately, it's not sustainable. So in many ways, we're going back and rebuilding. We have a saying that we farm soil today rather than crops. It's our contention that a majority of the food that we're consuming today is nothing more than roughage, nutrient deficient. So, you know, it's kind of like comparing the Western culture of medicine. We're always treating the symptom. You go for you go to the doctor for a strep throat and you get a moxicillin, a viacillin, a penicillin. It's always treating the symptom. Where the Eastern culture is, get the body in balance to defend against the disease in the first place. So we like to think that our model is really based more on an Eastern culture of medicine, of farming soil, healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people. And that's really the premise of our model. Oh, man. I have to say amen to that because, wow, wow, that is some good stuff right there. And you make a lot of really good points. You make, I mean, just facts. The facts tell it all. And you're really doing something about some of the challenges that we have. So tell us a little bit about how you're different because obviously there's other companies that are selling direct, but what makes you different from those companies? Well, there are some great companies out there doing some wonderful things, and um, we just try and do the best job that we can, and and that that seems to work for us. Um, obviously, we're getting to work together as a family, and that has been 
a huge if, – if somebody said you could pick anything you wanted to do over the last 40 years, I wouldn't have changed it. I've gotten to work with my father. My father's still actively involved, my mother, my wife. My son now is involved, uh, my brother, uh, and and our family team. But, you know, it's really – it does start with the soil. I think that fundamentally it's about the quality and the integrity of the product, shipping direct, um, we ultimately think that doctors in the future, our vision would be that our food would be able to be prescribed um, instead of being prescribed a penicillin or amoxicillin, you might be prescribed a turnip or a parsnip or a celery root for something that ails you. Um, we think that, and our main customer has been direct to high-end chefs, resorts, country clubs, private yachtsmen, um, wherever somebody can recognize the quality and they want to differentiate through the visual and through the flavor. The three most important things we've heard from chefs over the years is flavor, second flavor, third is flavor. So flavor has certainly been an important part. But we think that there are so many choices available out there today. Not only will the customer demand it to be great hospitality, great food, great service, unbelievable flavor, but also good for you. And so through those, I think, have been really one of the things that we've tried to do or many of the things that we've tried to do, as well as, and certainly not lastly, but food safety has been a huge, huge um, concern for us, and we take it very seriously and have invested quite heavily in making sure that our food safety was um, not only up to snuff but exceeded expectations. You know, I can honestly say, having eaten the produce grown there on your farm at some of the establishments that you sell to, I am absolutely impressed and blown away by the quality, by the consistency, by just everything about it. So kudos to you for staying true to to what it is that you do and what it is that makes you different. So what is it that we're going to see say in the next 10 years, what are we going to be doing different when it comes to farming uh, and things in the next 10 years that maybe we're not doing today? Well, I am absolutely convinced that the only way that our country and our world are sustainable is that we're going to see a plant-based future. Uh, there's an old saying that in Europe it's an 80% plant-based diet and 20% protein. And they also say that in the United States, it's an 80% protein and 20% plant-based diet. Now, that's the bad news, but it's also the good news. Because even though that number is too high to protein and too low to plant-based, it's moving. And it is moving at an increasing rate. We are seeing smaller portions in protein. And I'm not talking about vegan or vegetarian. Nothing wrong with those, but I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about reducing the amount of proteins and increasing the amount of plant-based uh, consumption. It's happening. It's real. It's not a fad. It's a trend. It's a movement. It has to happen. It will happen. It is happening. And you're going to see more plant-based diet in the future than you ever have in the past, at least in the United States, because ultimately it's about sustainability from a health standpoint, from an environmental standpoint as well. I think that you will see more and more plant-based diet uh, than ever before. You know, I think you're spot on. I think that 
maybe out of sheer necessity, we we end up going to more of a plant-based diet. And I can't wait to see that day because I agree with you. It is much more sustainable, much healthier, much it's it's the way to go. So, you know, you you have worked with arguably some of the most successful, most prominent, highest end chefs and establishments in the country. Over the years, I'm sure you glean some of the lessons or some of the standards that they uphold. Talk a little bit about you know, some of the people that you've worked with and some of the lessons that you've learned from some of those people. Well, we have been so fortunate. It is true. We have been so fortunate to get to work with some really amazing mentors. Um, Charlie Trotter was so ahead of his time. He did more for our family than we could ever repay. Uh, he died at 54 years old. There's not a day that goes by that we don't miss him. Jean-Louis Paladin also died way early. I think he was 63. He was a huge mentor and ambassador to us. Um, Alain Ducasse, Jean-George von Richten, Thomas Keller, Danielle Ballou, uh, many, many Ritz-Carlton chefs that were heavily um, based in European uh, influence, uh, Four Seasons, Ritz-Carlton's, uh, St. Regis's. And, you know, obviously one of the first things and one of the old sayings is you're only as good as the last plate that you serve. And I think the complacency is the beginning of the end. Um, never quit learning. Never keep pushing. There's always somebody behind you that's looking to have your place at the table. And you have to continue to keep driving it forward. Um, they have been great mentors. They're, they didn't get great without being very demanding and at a very high level of quality and integrity. And they they know that their customers expect that from them, and they expect that from us. I think that one of the you know biggest pieces of advice for somebody young coming in is, you know, don't think that you're going to start at the top. Find the career, find the area of interest to you, and jump in, even if it's at a lower level, and learn and grow and take advantage and ask questions and put extra time in. Don't worry about how much you're going to get paid today. Find something that you're absolutely passionate about. Learn everything you can learn about it, and the rest will come. Um, we certainly never jumped back into farming because we thought it was going to be some lucrative thing. It's in our DNA. We are dirt farmers. We love growing vegetables. It's in our blood. It's in our DNA, and it's just I really would recommend finding your passion, finding the area you're passionate about, and jumping in and the money will come. Truly words to live by. Well, Lee, I, I can't even tell you how grateful I am for you taking the time to do this. Like I said, I've looked up to you for a long time and still do, and uh, look forward to possibly catching up with you in the future. Hey, it is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, or anyone who's interested in making food and money. And when you get a second, give us a review. It really helps us get the word out as well as letting us know how we're doing. Want to connect with us? Check us out at Make Food, Make Money on Instagram or Facebook. Or email us. 
info at businessshop.org.